Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Michael Pollan, is the author of six previous best-selling books, including In Defense of Food, The Omnivore's Dilemma, and The Botany of Desire. A longtime contributor to the New York Times, he's also the Knight Professor of Journalism at Berkeley. And in 2010, Time Magazine named him one of the 100 most influential people in the world. Michael Pollan returns to Health Watch today to talk about his latest book entitled Cooked, A Natural History of Transformation. Welcome back to Health Watch, Michael Pollan. Thank you, David. Well, let's start out with the enterprise of writing Cooked. What, what is the enterprise of Cooked? Well, the enterprise of Cooked was kind of, you know, having recognized how important uh, cooking is to our health and the health of our whole food system, um, I decided I would take a serious look at it and explore it by learning how to do it. Um, so I divided uh, all cooking into four essential transformations, uh, fire, water, air, and earth, each corresponding to a different, really a different technology for transforming uh, food to make it more healthful and nutritious and flavorful. Um, and in each in each of those areas, I apprenticed myself to uh, a master, you know, a, a great baker, a great um, uh, great picklers and fermenters, uh, great pitmasters, and did my best to learn, you know, how these transformations are done and where they came from and what do they mean to us. Is there an intentionality behind using the the four elements of Greek medicine as the dividing structure for the book? Well, you know, that was kind of a, uh, I don't know exactly why it lined up so neatly, but when I started trying to come up with a typology for all cooking, um, I realized I could divide it into these four elements, and um, it I think it's just a coincidence that they worked. Or there is a kind of lingering value or truth to those um, classical elements that science has lost track of. I'm not sure exactly. It just so happened that I could line them up pretty well without a lot of shoehorning. I mean, there are kinds of cooking that don't fit into the typology that well. Um, Sushi, for example, uh, which is a form of cooking, even though it's a raw food. Uh, I don't know exactly where I would put it. Um, Well, I love love the division because it harkens back. You always talk about how you don't rely on nutritional science as flawed as it is to decide how to eat, but back to tradition. And with the Greek medicine division, it's really interesting how when you pursue a master like you were talking about, we end up uncovering these people who are eccentric and obsessive around this one form of transformation of nature into culture. And they don't just seem like master cooks who are super skillful, but they also seem almost like mystics who are reverent and full of wonder around the mystery of what they're doing. Well, I think that's exactly right. I mean, they've taken they they've taken hold of something very profound in the world. I mean, how you take say grass seed and uh, uh, grind it, add water to it, and turn it into something as wonderful as bread, and that these are people who have dedicated their lives to getting really good at that particular magic. Um, and you know, it's not just Greek medicine, but I think Ayurvedic medicine also uses the four elements. So. They have a um, uh, they have a, a value that we don't quite understand, but but I think we do it at, at a kind of instinctual level. So in cooked, you say that cooking is literally baked into our biology. What do you mean by that? Well, we are obligate cooks at this point. Um, we have evolved. Um, it's, it was probably two million years ago 
that we seized control of fire and learned how to transform food uh, by means of fire. When we did that, um, we gave ourselves an enormous evolutionary edge over some other species because when you cook food, you get more energy from it, and you don't have to use as much energy uh, to process it in your body. You don't need digestion. It's a very energy-intense um, process, and cooked food is easier to digest. It's also safer and often detoxified in, in the case of uh, tubers and, and, and crops like that. And you don't have to chew it as much, which saves you an awful lot of energy and time. Um, and when we discovered cooking, um, it was a watershed event in our own development. Uh, this is when, according to the cooking hypothesis, which I uh, discuss in the book, this is when the human brain undergoes its kind of quantum expansion uh, in size and complexity. And at the same time, when the human gut or the ape gut we had shrinks because we don't need as much, uh, we don't need as many metabolic resources to digest food once we've started cooking it. So, but at this point, you can't turn back. Um, our whole bodies are, and and lifestyles are organized around the uh, access to cooked food. And yeah, people can live on raw food, um, and there are people who live on exclusively raw foods. But two things about them are worth noting. One is they're really dependent on the Vitamix um, to process their food. Otherwise, they would be spending half their waking hours in the act of chewing, like many apes our size do. Um, and also the fact that uh, people on a complete raw diet, um, according to the, you know, the science I've read, don't do very well. About half the women stop menstruating, suggesting that they're not getting all the energy they need from a raw diet. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with raw food or some raw food, but I think an exclusively raw food diet, there's some uh, good arguments against it. And you quote uh, Cloud Levi-Strauss uh, about how human culture begins with cooking, according to him. And a lot of the French yeah. people in the book seem to believe that human culture begins with cooking. Well, you know, Levi-Strauss, that wasn't his theory. He just kept noticing as he, as he looked at different uh, groups and tribes around the world that many of them um, used the same metaphor, that nature was raw and culture was cooked. And it was in the transformation of one into the other that, that uh, civilization really begins. And um, so this was just a kind of you know universal metaphor, but it turns out to have a lot of truth behind it. And of course, there, were, there have been other people in our history who've said that we are the, um, uh, the cooking animal. Um, and you know, it's it's as it's about as good as way to draw a line between us and other species as there is. Uh, although, I did encounter some exceptions to it. Um, so, for example, if you include fermentation, as I do, as one of the the principal transformations that we call cooking, uh, that, which is to say, cooking with the use of microbes and without the use of any heat whatsoever, except the heat generated by the microbes. Um, well, if you call that cooking, then you find that there are animals who ferment their food before they eat it. Um, when squirrels bury acorns, for example, they're not just hiding them. Um, they're, they're allowing them to ferment. And um, the microbes in the soil are beginning to break down the polymers and, and uh, make accessible the, the minerals. Uh, basically, seeds are, are kind of locked up tight um, by, the, by the plant um, until various enzymes are released. And um, so squirrels arguably cook their, 
their acorns, and any animal that buries its food is probably doing some cooking. Uh, even you know birds that keep seed in their craw. Um, I mean, you can argue either way. It's it's either digestion or cooking. Um, of course, it's happening inside their bodies. Um, but that souring of seeds is a, is a proto form of cooking. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Health Watch, and we're talking today with Michael Pollan about his new book, Cooked: A Natural History of Transformation. Michael, the 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 two transformations that were most magical to me were that of air and of earth. The last two chapters in Cooked, and you you said it wasn't that surprising that after you researched these two elements, that wine and bread would be part of the sacrament in in Catholicism. And you also noted that making bread was the thing that you were most proud of doing of the various things you you explored. What is what is the magic of the element of air well, and of making know, bread? Yeah, air is where I talk about bread because bread is a good loaf of bread is about eighty percent air, and and the challenge of baking is 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 how do you get air into bread, and why you want to do that is complicated, but it has to do with flavor and um, uh, digestibility and um, and scent, basically. And we like airy foods because it conducts delicious molecules to the back of our, our mouths and from there up to our nasal passages where we can taste them. We have a secondary uh, sense of taste called retronasal olfaction, um, which deals with food once we've eaten it rather than before we've eaten it. Um, and um, which is orthonasal olfaction. But bread is, you know, you can see why it was regarded as so miraculous and, and why Christ used it to uh, as, a, as a demonstration of his divine powers. I mean, you know, it does appear as if you're multiplying the amount of food you have um, through this transformation because it gets bigger before your eyes. Um, and it is an incredibly satisfying thing to learn how to make because you end up, you know, taking this kind of white mud uh, called dough and ending up with this beautiful, fragrant, risen, large form, uh, something that just didn't exist, um, you know, before. I mean, it really does seem, you know, de novo. I mean, it's just out of, out of pure nothing. You have this, uh, uh, this great thing that you've created, which, by the way, happens to be wonderfully tasty. Um, people's feelings about gluten notwithstanding. but um, Could you talk more about gluten? You have a, a section, Gluten and the Triumph of Wheat, and then you also do a little bit of a meditation on why there might be a, a rising tide of, of gluten problems. Yeah, well, gluten is a very interesting substance. It's actually two uh, proteins that come together when wet in a kind of mesh, uh, glutenin and uh, gliad- gl- gliadin. And uh, when they come together, they, one of them is extensible or, or um, stretchy, and the other one is kind of rubbery and pulls back. And together, they are what allows bread or dough to hold air in a way very few other grains allow it to do. They, they basically form those little balloons. Um, and so when gas is produced inside the, the dough during the fermentation, they can hold it. They can stretch and hold it. And... Um, you know, other grasses are just as nutritious or arguably more nutritious. People ate barley before the invention of bread and were quite content with that. Um, but barley could not rise. You couldn't leaven barley very well. And um, so it is when the powers of gluten are discovered, which happens with the first loaf of bread, which probably was baked in ancient Egypt about 6,000 years ago, 
that um, wheat begins to take over from all the other grasses um, until today when it's you know one of the most widely, if not the most widely planted crop, 550 million acres devoted to wheat. And the reason is because wheat has gluten. So gluten was the wheat plant's ticket to world domination. Um, and we, as a result, have a lot of gluten in our diet. Is it a problem? Well, for some people it is. There is celiac disease, which is a, uh, um, uh, it's not exactly an allergy, but a strong reaction to uh, to gluten um, that leaves people who eat it very, very ill and unable to absorb nutrients and and, and leads to a failure to thrive in children who have it. And then there's a more, um, somewhat more, and that, that represents 1% or 2% of the population. And then there's a somewhat more vague category of gluten intolerance. And these are people who um, don't feel well, their digestion gets screwed up when they eat gluten. And the numbers of those people seem to be growing at rates that are kind of eye-popping and um, make you wonder um, how things could have changed that fast. Um, some people think it's because we're eating more gluten, and we certainly have bread wheat to have as much gluten as possible. However, for most of Western history, people ate a lot more bread than we do, um, about 50% in the diet of, a, of someone in the West, in Europe, for most of um, the last millennium. Um, so they've been getting more gluten than we were. Um, so the question is then why this recent problem? And there's a couple theories that I explore, um, none of them exclusive or necessarily the answer. One is that um, a lot of people think they have gluten intolerance and don't, and that the power of suggestion is playing a role, and that if your friend tells you they got off gluten and they feel great and they're sleeping better, um, if you do it, you're going to feel better yourself too. It's just kind of a placebo effect. Um, so possibly that explains some of it. Certainly the incidence of gluten intolerance is, it can, it's hard to imagine it's rising as fast as the, the market segment of gluten-free products is rising. Um, but, you know, I do run into people for whom this is a real phenomenon, and it could be explained as um, part of a more general disorder of our immune systems. Um, our, our immune systems are disordered in many ways. Um, we have an enormous increase in autoimmune diseases of all kinds, uh, allergy, uh, eczema, asthma. Um, our immune systems are mistaking friends and foes very often and attacking things that are not real threats. And, and gluten, that big pair of molecules, may be some such thing that um, because of our disordered immune systems, our bodies are going crazy um, and attacking Another possible explanation, is, and that may have to do with um, the fact that our gut microbiome is struggling um, under the pressure of the Western diet, and a lot of people are um, have um, their epithelial layer, the, the, the inner skin, uh, the lining of the intestines, may be a little more permeable than it should be, allowing big molecules, possibly like gluten, to escape and cause reactions. Um, another theory, though, is that um, we're, we're using gluten in a different way, which is to say we are fermenting bread uh, no longer slowly and with a sourdough culture, but very quickly with instant yeast, uh, a kind of monoculture of, of uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is the yeast that raises bread and also makes um, alcohol, makes beer. Um, and uh, 
there is some interesting research out of Italy uh, suggesting that if bread is given a proper long sourdough fermentation, such as all bread was until not too long ago, that that fermentation breaks down the gluten and and destroys certain peptides on the molecules that may contribute to celiac disease, and that people who have properly fermented breads do not uh, struggle with either celiac or gluten intolerance the way people on instant rise breads struggle. So, as I said, you know, it could be some combination of all these factors. There's a lot going on, and we don't really know the answer for sure. Um, but it's all very intriguing, and um, and I kind of lay it out in the book without you know taking sides and saying this is clearly what's going on because we just don't know. Well, well, let's use that as a, a place to jump further into fermentation. The last chapter on Earth, which seems to me the chapter of the most mystery and wonder, and you have a a, a saying that goes against the the idea of terroir, the idea that place is informing the food that comes from the French wine tradition, that everything is everywhere. And you have a story about a cheese-making nun and her wooden paddle that sort of demonstrates this this idea of everything is everywhere. Could you could you share that with yeah, our listeners? You know, th- there's always been this question that um, where do these microbes that create, say, San Francisco sourdough bread or the taste of a particular cheese come from? And um, one of the kind of mysteries of fermentation is that um, these microbes, the necessary microbes, just kind of show up if you give them the right conditions, and no one knows quite where they come from. So when we first discovered the um, lactobacillus responsible for sourdough bread in, in uh, San Francisco, we named it uh, San Franciscensis, uh, I'm sorry, San Franciscensis, and, um, and assumed that we'd found it here and it must be a local microbe. But then it started showing up all over the place, and they found it in Belgium and Moscow, and um, it seems to be everywhere you make sourdough bread, and just about nowhere else. Um, so one theory of microbiology is if you create the right conditions, there is a, um, you know, microbes are everywhere. They're in the air, they're on our bodies, they're in the soil, um, that they will respond and take off once they have conditions to their liking. Um, but that doesn't necessarily uh, contradict the idea that there might be a microbial terroir. Um, that even the species, although the species of microbes might be uh, consistent across borders, there are a significant amount of variation locally. And so Sister Noella, the cheese-making microbiologist nun that I, I spent some time with, I mean, she believes that even though geotricum, which is a very important um, uh, microbe in uh, in cheese making is just about everywhere and on all cheeses. The differences in strain are significant enough to produce slightly different flavors in different places. Um, but you know, she made um, she makes a, a, a version of Saint Nectaire, which is a, a traditional French cheese from the Auvergne, and she used the traditional barrel and the traditional paddle and the and all the and the traditional recipe. And lo and behold, she ended up with the same bugs that they find in uh, Saint-Nectaire in France. Um, and that's quite mysterious uh, how that could happen. Um, but she's, um, she's, a very, she's a fascinating character. I learned so much from her because she, she, she sees cheese in both its spiritual and microbiological dimensions at the same time. And um, 
she she had a real conflict because uh, she was making cheese in a in a barrel, which is kind of you know outrageous in this day and age of stainless steel. And um, but she was convinced that the barrel was safer than stainless steel, even though you can't sanitize it. It's almost impossible to sterilize a wooden barrel because there's so many nooks and crannies for bacteria to hide out in. So the health department wanted to close her down, and she created a demonstration for them, though, that persuaded them to leave her alone. And what she did was quite remarkable. She took some raw milk cheese from the Abbey's. Her Abbey is in Bethlehem, Connecticut, and she um, uh, added, uh, you know, to put like five or ten gallons in a stainless steel vat and put five or ten gallons in her traditional uh, cheese-making barrel, and she deliberately inoculated them both with E. coli. And something very interesting happened. After three or four hours, the um, the stainless steel vat of milk was uh, had had seen such a tremendous bloom of E. coli that it was completely toxic. Um, meanwhile, the the wooden barrel batch of milk had vanishingly small uh, amounts of E. coli. And what had happened is the lactobacillus that live in the barrel, in this white scum that's that's still that's always there, they had started. Uh, proliferating as soon as they encountered milk, which is one of their favorite foods, lactose, for the lactic acid eating, for the, you know, lactose uh, uh, eating bacillus, and um, they transfer that lactose, which is a sugar, into lactic acid, acidifying the milk, and that acid level killed off the E. coli. So you see those traditional French cheesemakers were practicing a kind of folk microbiology before we even knew what that word was. That's a perfect segue into your article in the New York Times Magazine about germs and also post-pasturians. What are post-pasturians and, and what are they onto that, uh, that the sister, sister Noella was probably onto as well? Well, you know, we've been engaged in an all-out war against bacteria since Pasteur, since he showed us that microbes were the cause of disease. And they are the cause of disease. But as even he understood, most microbes were not the cause of disease. Most of them were, were absolutely uh, harmless and in some cases were actually very beneficial. But as often happens in modern society, the, the subtleties of the message did not survive. And basically, we treated bacteria as a threat, all of it. And we live in an, uh, you know, an age of a hygienic food and in an age where we use antimicrobials in everyday life, you know, we wash our lettuce in chlorine, and we use hand sanitizers, and we eat a lot, we ingest a lot of antimicrobial substances with our food. We give antibiotics to our meat animals, and with the result that the Western uh, gut microbiota, which is to say the the community of bacteria that live in your large intestine and are we're learning essential to your health and well-being, uh, are struggling with this onslaught. And the post-Pasteurians, this is a term that I think was coined by an MIT uh, anthropologist, um, are people who are trying to renegotiate the terms of our relationship with the microcosmos, um, with, with bacteria and fungi, on the understanding that most of them are healthy and that we, are, um, we make a tremendous mistake by trying to kill them all and that we're paying for it with our disordered immune system, as we were talking about earlier, and, um, and a sick gut. 
which is leading, you know, perhaps to very high rates of autoimmune disease and and uh, and possibly chronic diseases as well. Um, so I, I met this fascinating culture of um, fermentos, um, people who are avid about fermentation. They're remarkably relaxed about hygiene, um, and um, they kind of turned me on to this world of um, the fermentation within your body, um, because that's what's happening in your in your large intestine. Um, the fiber and other plant parts and, and other foods, too, that are not digested in the upper GI end up there and are fermented. And that fermentation turns out to be very important to our health because it um, the, the byproduct of it is uh, uh, many valuable nutrients like some vitamin Bs and some uh, vitamin K, but also short-chain fatty acids that nourish the gut lining itself directly. Um, and that one of the hallmarks of the Western diet is that it consists of readily, readily absorbable sugars and fats, most of which never make it to the large intestine. And um, I talk to scientists who really believe we're starving the large intestine of what it needs to be healthy because we eat so little fiber in our diet. Um, most processed food has, has no little or no fiber. And so we've designed a diet that's very appealing to us, um, but offers very little to the microbes. And, you know, we're only 10% human. The rest is microbes. So we have to figure out a way to feed them, too, uh, if we're going to be healthy. And, and that that is it's a whole different way than I had ever thought of, of looking at the, at the, at the crisis of the industrialized diet. Um, but it, it, it explains a lot um, that essentially we're not feeding the fermentation within. We had the science writer Mary Roach on about her new book, Gulp, and she was arguing in there that uh, our squeamishness and our revulsion around the colon and its contents was actually retarding a lot of legitimate research. For instance, uh, anal cancer didn't have a association uh, advocating for it until a couple of years ago, and, and fecal transplantation is something in its infancy now. Do you do you think there's something to yeah, that around? I haven't, I haven't read Mary's book yet, but I, I'm sure she's right. Um, it's also, you know, to think of those two pounds of, of, uh, of bacteria living in your colon as an organ, which is essentially what it is and how it functions, takes quite a leap because it doesn't look like much. Um, and it doesn't have a structure that that's perceptible to us, and it disgusts us too. So all these things um, make it very hard for us to see it uh, correctly, and I'm sure it has slowed research. But now, of course, we have these powerful new tools, um, this batch sequencing of DNA, which allows us to take a, a sample of any kind of biomass, whether it's feces or, or um, seawater or soil, and batch sequence all the DNA in it, and then tease it apart to figure out what species are there, suddenly we have a powerful new light to look into this wilderness. And what we're finding is extraordinary. Um, it's a very exciting time in the science of the gut and the science of the uh, microbiome. And I think over the next five years, some of the most important uh, discoveries about human health will come out of that research. Well, let's broaden our, our focus for a minute and talk about the larger ways you talk about cooking and transformation. Sander Katz, who figures prominently in the fermentation chapter, mm -hmm. he argues for fermentation as a, a form of cultural revival. And 
I, and I believe you do the same for cooking as a whole, as a as a form of cultural and economic revival. Can can you tell us a little bit about what you mean? Well, you know, fermented foods are very interesting. They're different than other foods. Um, first of all, they're acquired tastes. Um, they're not the kinds of flavors that you know any baby gravitates toward. They don't have the simple satisfactions of sweetness or um, uh, you know the way ice cream does or, or chocolate or something like that. Even though chocolate is fermented. Um, but they're, they're culturally very specific tastes. And so one of the interesting things you find is that fermented foods are culturally defining. And so many cultures have a ferment that they feel is them, you know, in the way that um, the, uh, the Koreans think kimchi is their defining food or the, uh, the Chinese love stinky tofu, which is essentially, you know, tof- blocks of tofu soaked in a in rotten vegetables. Um, and we like cheese. Um, that's a very important food to us. And it's very interesting to see how across cultures, these foods often are regarded as disgusting by other people. Um, so they're a way of kind of knitting us together. Uh, you know, we're the people who like cheese. And they're the people who like stinky tofu. I mean, we're as grossed out by stinky tofu as the Chinese are grossed out by cheese. And, um, so that, so that, you know, you've got two cultures at work here. You have the microbial culture that, that creates these foods, which, of course, is preserved by people making them generation after generation or batch after batch. And then you've got the, um, uh, you know, the, the, so you have the microbial culture and then you have the human culture. And these two things feed off each other, literally, and, um, and, and, and are passed down from generation to generation, which, of course, is exactly what culture is. Um, so it's a fascinating area to explore, and um, at, at so many levels. At the at the cultural level, you know, I went to a kimchi museum in uh, in Seoul, one of six in the country, and all, here were all these uh, kindergartners trooping through on field trips, and they all had their identical yellow backpacks, and they looked kind of bored, frankly. And I asked the, uh, and they're looking at dioramas of women making kimchi and collections of ancient urns and, and piles of spice. And I asked the docent, I said, why, why do you bring um, little children to, uh, to a kimchi museum? And she said with a completely straight face, children are not born liking kimchi, <laughs> which is to say they must be taught. And the reason they must be taught is that it's part of learning to be Korean. Uh, you know, you learn the national anthem and you learn to like kimchi. Um, so fermented foods perform many, many functions for, for a society. And, of course, that wasn't the original function. The original function was simply preservation. Um, before you had refrigeration, um, uh, fermentation was how you protected food because the lactic acids in it kept them from rotting and, um, uh, and kept them safe. Um, fermented vegetables are one of the safest things you can eat. Fermented cheese is a little more complicated. One of the other areas on a sociological level that I think Cooked is asking for a reexamination of and a possible transformation of is, is gender roles. And you talk about how the fast food industry really exploited the women's movement in the 70s to get a toehold in a specific way in our lives. And, and really it seems like if we're going to go back to cooking as, as a part of both as a craft and as a, as a functional part of our, our daily living, it's going to require some sort of reexamination of who's doing the cooking. Without question. And we're not going to go back. We can only go forward. Um, going back to a world where women were cooking most of the meals is just not going to happen and shouldn't happen. And 
And the, the future of cooking, if there is a future of cooking, is going to be getting men and women and children, very important, uh, into the kitchen. Um, and for reasons of fairness is one reason, but also because it has so many rewards to offer men and children. Um, I think, you know, one of the problems with cooking, one of the reasons that many people turned against it is that it was isolating. You know, in the nuclear family, women were cooking alone um, in very quiet uh, suburban subdivisions after men went off to work and kids went off to school. And that's not that much fun necessarily. Um, Some people like cooking alone, but many people prefer cooking with other people. Uh, It's a great time for conversation. Um, And if you look historically, it is where a great deal of conversation took place is – Around the millstone and and over the, you know around the community oven and around the chopping block and um, so I think we need to restore that social dimension to cooking um, and and one of the ways to do that is obviously to um, cook with friends and and get you know men into the into the uh, into the kitchen um, I think we have an opportunity to do that I think that the stereotype of cooking as women's work is loosening its hold. Um, looking at kids today, my own son, he, he really does not have that stereotype because he's he's watched men cook uh, quite a bit in his own life, and he's also watched a lot of cooking shows on TV where you see all these macho guys. Uh, and it's a completely um, prestigious uh, profession these days to be a cook. Um, so I think we have an opportunity to build a non-sexist culture of home cooking. And nothing would do more for our um, our health and, and the happiness of our families if, if we could establish that culture. Well, Michael, it was a pleasure having you on Health Watch today. And I was hoping we could just end the program with your thoughts on how cooking transforms us from consumers to producers and, and the stepping stone that is for larger changes in the world. Sure. Well, you know... I'll tell you a little secret about this book. It's only partly about food. It it fundamentally is about how we organize our lives and to what extent are we going to be consumers or producers. Um, Our society, consumer capitalism, is organized in such a way that we're really encouraged to just do one thing, the one thing we do well that we, you know, make a living at. Uh, If you're a doctor, that's what you do. Or if you're a writer, that's what you do. And you're supposed to take your money from that work and everything else, all your other needs and desires are um, turned into occasions for consumption. I think that that's a kind of impoverished way to live. I think that, um, I don't know about you, but my identity as a consumer is not the identity I'm proudest of. I'm, I'm more proud... Uh, when I produce, when I make things. And we normally assume that that means work, not leisure. But actually producing as part of your leisure is an incredibly satisfying thing to do. Um, you know, whether you're growing a little of your own food in a garden or cooking it or, um, you know, fixing your car or sewing your clothes or whatever it is, these DIY pursuits are satisfying because they make us feel Hey, there's some I can provide for myself. I'm competent. I'm self-reliant. Not completely, but partly. And that's a very empowering thing. I think one of the reasons we have so much trouble imagining uh, living in a different way, using less fossil fuel, say, you know, adapting to a world of climate change, is because we are so dependent on so many others for everything we need. And to the extent that we can take back control of production, 
um, and take care of ourselves a little bit more and not outsource everything to corporations, I think we begin to entertain the possibility of change, um, that we can imagine living in a different way because we've already reorganized our own lives. So I think there's something very empowering about getting into the kitchen. And, and the beauty of cooking, as opposed to all the other things you might do, is you already have the means of production. It's called your kitchen. We already have the factory we need to begin this kind of production. We don't have to go buy the tools. We don't have to create the place, the workshop. Um, so it's a really good place to start. And, um, and that's one of the reasons I wrote this book, because I think there's a lot more at stake than our diet in the way we're organizing our lives. And you do a really great job, Michael, of evoking a sense of fun and curiosity, but also uh, that it that it can involve failure and practice and patience and still be uh, something that's explorative. Yeah, you know, it's not about being masterful. Um, it's about trying it and failing, and there's nothing wrong with failing. And I certainly made some bad batches of kimchi, and I made a batch of beer that smelled like Band-Aids and... and uh, um, so, you know, part of it is we, we're, we're intimidated that we set a really high bar. Um, but you do what you can, and you get better at it the more you practice. And so learning how to be comfortable with failure in the kitchen is also a very important lesson that it teaches. Well, I, I started out on my journey of braising inspired by uh, Cooked already. Oh, that's wonderful, David. I'm so happy to hear that. Well, thanks for being on Health Watch today, Michael. Oh, thank you very much. It was great to be here. We were talking today with Michael Pollan the author of Cooked, A Natural History of Transformation. You've been listening to Health Watch on KBOO 90.7 FM, Portland, Oregon. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host.